We're spending a little bit of time this afternoon on Program Standard 6, on data, evidence, evaluation, and how those things interact, particularly on the annual reporting framework. Um, and a group of people from ACDE have been working with HL around this. So members of that group are going to speak to us now. Um, so uh, Michelle Simon from UWSU, <laughs> Western Sydney University, um, and uh, Chris Davison from UNSW. And Chris wanted me to note that although they are both from New South Wales and indeed both from Sydney, there's, there was nothing particularly centric about that. Um, they both have extensive experience in other places, other states, um, and they basically were the people who volunteered to get involved. So that's what happens. Um, and Edmund Misson from AITSL. Uh, so the plan for this session is that they will talk and run us through some ideas for about half an hour. We'll take just questions of clarification, so we won't take comments at the end of that session. Then we'll get you talking among yourselves at your tables for a while, and then we'll do a report back in conversation at the end. So that's kind of the, the goal and the structure of where we're headed and how we're getting there. So I believe Michelle's up first. So. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's my job to, I guess, um, put forward some preliminary ruminations uh, in, in trying to, I guess, think conceptually about the challenge um, that we have been asked to uh, think through in, in, in looking at meeting the requirements of Standard 6.2. Um, and I want to approach this as an intellectual exercise rather than one that is about how do we comply? Because I actually think that gives us more room to move, um, but it also, I think, really speaks in a better way to the spirit of what we're being asked to do. So I think the way I would like... The opening um, sort of leaping off point is meeting the requirements of Standard 6.2 requires us to develop and think through a comprehensive evaluation framework for each of the programs that we offer. And I think that's really important. It's a comprehensive evaluation framework for each of our programs. Because essentially what we're going to be doing is being asked to follow cohorts of students through programs. So if we have a, new, a newly accredited program that starts in 2018 and we have 200 students enrol in that program, brand spanking new, they're the cohort that we follow. We have some challenges because we also might have 400 students who transition in from an old program who come in to complete the new program. But if we're thinking about how we design a rigorous evaluation framework that follows, um, follows cohorts, we have to actually think through how we manage that and what we're going to do. And, and in putting together this framework, um, there's a range of data sources that we can use. And one of the data sources we can use is the annual data um, that we are going to be asked to collect. But I just want to make a few opening observations about um, the evaluations that focus on determining impact. Evaluations that focus on determining impact have a strong summative, summative focus. They are retrospective. Uh, it's about making a judgement about the value or worth. And in this case, the three objects or foci that we're being asked to, to, to focus on are pre-service teacher performance, graduate outcomes and program impact. So there's actually some different objects tied up in there. So we have to be clear in putting together our framework 
what the gaze has to be focused on. Um, and as I said, they are uh, impact evaluations are, are retrospective, and they occur at a point in time in delivery. Uh, and the evaluation theory tells us, and that point in time has to be reasonable and appropriate when it is appropriate to make a judgment about impact. So if we're implementing a new program, we can say very little about its impact in year one of implementation. If we have a four-year teacher education program, what can we reasonably say about in impact and when? And so then you get the interplay between summative and formative evaluation that is played out, which is why I think, again, the idea of saying we need to do the intellectual work to come up with a framework that we understand the relationship between what we're evaluating and how it should work. So, as I said, impact, and, and so the evaluation literature tells us, well, impact, is, impact evaluations are usually done on mature programs that have settled, that have had sufficient time. Now, that becomes a bit problematic because our programs are like, you know, moving feasts. <laughs> so, so then, again, how we understand our programs and how we check how they evolve over time becomes very important in terms of us in understanding how we can assert impact. So again, this is not a compliance job. This is a, you know, I think, shows how probably impoverished my life is, I actually think this is actually quite an exciting intellectual challenge. <laughs> and certainly when I gave this... That's right. And actually when I gave my Masters of Education students who studied theory and practice of evaluation with me, the intellectual, I said, let's do this as an excellent... They actually got quite excited about it. They actually enjoyed the intellectual challenge of thinking this through. And they came up with some very interesting ideas. And Edmund, I won't tell you some of the suggestions that they made either, but, you know. Uh, so so it, it, this is why I think it's, you know, it's important to think this through. So impact, and impact, we've got to think about impact. What does that mean? Well, it can be related to the immediate. So, for example, our pre-service teacher performance, as well as long-term impact the graduate outcomes. And these are the outcomes of interest as well as the critical question that we have to ask is, you know, was the program implemented as it was accredited? How has it changed? And what have been the impacts of those change? So there's also a, a summative and improvement piece here where we're interested in the process of what we've delivered as much as how then we've achieved the outcomes and therefore demonstrate the impact. Um, and, and importantly, it's interested, I think we have to think about in designing how we approach this, we're interested in what works for who under what conditions. What works, so it's not just about what works for our pre-service teachers, it's what works for our cohorts of pre-service teachers and how does it work for them and under what conditions. How well do these different groups perform? How does the program perform for different groups? And the features of the program are also important. Remembering um, these are just a set of conceptual ideas and tools, I guess, to help us think through. Standard 6.1 is also really underpinned by a commitment to continuous improvement as well as a demonstration of impact. So, again, it goes back to these two purposes here. Um, 
Our masters and mistresses want us to know that we are committed to continuous improvement and that we can demonstrate that in real and material ways and perhaps in public ways um, that we perhaps may not have done in the past. So I said, as I said, there are a lot of practical considerations. The most immediate is if we're going to follow cohorts of students through a program, how do we manage the transition of students in and out of programs? The other thing that when we look at standard 6.1 or 6.2 and some of the materials that have been provided, this evaluation approach is underpinned by a rationale which we're asked to provide. Now I have interpreted the rationale to mean um, a requirement for us to articulate what our will program will do and how it will do it. It is the program's theory of change, or if you want to use the evaluation technical speak, it's the program logic. How will our program produce quality graduates? Because unless we know how it's intended to work, when we then come to try and evaluate, we could run into some problems. Whereas we could be asking questions that our program has not even been set up to, to do. So we need to understand the theory of change that underpins our program. So, you know, you can look at the, you know, the traditional program logic, which sort of looks at inputs, activities, outputs, short-term outcomes, immediate-term outcomes and long-term outcomes. Now, we're not going to go into any of the practical details of what some of those challenges will face. This is about getting hold of the conceptual ideas. Uh, but clearly graduate outcomes are, and that are some of the longer-term impacts of our programs that, we, that we've been asked to consider. And so the plan for this plan, this conceptualisation of, of demonstrating impact, um, relies on data being collected over the life of the program and it is inclusive of the annual data. So one of the challenges in designing an evaluation framework, once you've actually got the framework, is then you say, well, what are the sources of data? And here we've got some challenges, we've got some mandatory data we need to collect, so obviously we need to think about well, how does that fit in, what can we use that in terms of telling our story. And there are also then the question of what additional things do we need, do we want to collect data on in order to be able to demonstrate how our program that we have, have thought through and demonstrated um, you know, will, will, will actually work. So, so I see designing the evaluation framework as an intellectual challenge that we have to do within our faculties, within our, our program teams. Uh, and that's going to, be, going to be significant, I think. But we need to have a clear... We can't do the sorts of things that Standard 6.2 are doing unless we actually understand how our program works, the theory of change. Um, and, as I, and I think that the other thing is when we look at the sorts of things that we're going to have to do in terms of demonstrating impact, quantitative data will only go so far. So we have to also think about the qualitative data that we might actually also need to use and how we can collect that in efficient and effective ways. Because if we're following cohorts of students, we could imagine that some of the, some of the qualitative impact type stories could add valuable data to help us understand perhaps not only how, how cohorts are you know, impacting on you know, the outcomes for cohorts, but also how they encounter and move with the changes that we would actually be making to the programs because we are also in this continuous cycle of improvement. So with those sort of just basic ideas, I think it's, it's um, my, my starting point is this is an intellectually challenging exercise for us to do and one that we have to approach from an intellectual 
an academic perspective rather than a compliance-driven perspective if we really are to get the most out of it. Um, and then with respect to Edmund, once we've done that, we then need to say, well, okay, then how does that fit with what we've been asked to do? How do we then um, fit with what we're, we're required to do for our accreditation? Because I think in, in doing it that way, we're going to find that probably everything that's required is going to be underneath that. But if we go start at the compliance end, we're going to probably have an impoverished approach, which means that we may run the risk of what a lot of the impact evaluations do, which is missing some of the valuable outcomes uh, because we're too focused on looking at what we've been told to look at. It's the difference between uh, an, an evaluation driven by objectives and a goal-free evaluation. We're not quite got goal-free, but we do have the scope to be able to define what we put our gaze on. So with those conceptual ideas and that waffle, I will then now hand over to Edmund, who will talk a lot more practical things. Well, there's a challenge. Um, so thanks very much, Michelle. I think that's uh, actually a brilliant sort of framing of, of this work and this set of issues and, you know, it almost feels now like going in the wrong direction to start talking about standards, if Helen will forgive me, and um, uh, the more compliancy bits. But I, I think it is important just to talk through uh, the structure of these standards, uh, what, what the implications are, and also what the intent is, which I, I think hopefully is the more interesting and positive bit that lines up with what Michelle's just been saying. So going back to the sort of overall structure and underlying uh, principles of this, um, this approach to accreditation, uh, the, the aspiration is for a system based on, on evidence. And of course, that's one of the things that we hope gets us out of the cycle of 101 reviews. Um, so uh, there are all sorts of elements of this in the approach. Uh, I'm going to talk about the plan for impact um, and the annual reporting. Uh, AITSL is also doing significant work on a, um, a national initial teacher education and teacher workforce data strategy, which uh, should support this work quite well. Uh, we've already had the research agenda for, for ITE uh, endorsed and published, and we're also working on scoping and evaluation of the whole, uh, whole approach and the whole response and implementation of the response to TMAG. So this... Uh, particular work sort of sits within a framework that looks to generate evidence about not only initial teacher education but about the accreditation of initial teacher education and I, I think that's an important under, underlying principle to keep in mind. Um, another sort of feature of this area is that it deals with a whole lot of standards that are, are intertwined and now uh, the diagram there uh, attempts to uh, to depict that. Uh, so, you know, there are those really foundational standards in Standard One that talk about uh, the outcomes achieved for pre-service teachers, basically in terms of assessment that demonstrates they're meeting the whole range of the standards of, for teachers. Um, the teacher performance assessment as a, a specific requirement there and also the demonstration of an impact on student learning. And then there's the um, standard 1.4 that deals with 
graduate outcomes. And then all those feed into standard six and the, uh, you know, again, the plan for impact and the, uh, the annual reporting are situated uh, within this standard which talks about program evaluation. So I think um, standard 6.1 in some ways is less specific, can be less of a focus, but actually is absolutely critical here because it talks about the uses of this data within a program and that's the only point of collecting data is to use it for something useful. Um, so annual reporting specifically, um, these are the, the requirements that are there. The uh, plan for demonstrating impact uh, with its, um, its mandatory requirements but also the whole richness of data that, that Michelle was, was talking about. And again, I think it's important not to focus on the, the minimum and the mandatory here. Um, the uh, other data uh, that's required around sort of some information about the program and its context, but also there are other standards dotted through the program standards that require particular pieces of information. Uh, and again, you know, linked to what Michelle was saying, these programs are not kind of static artefacts, they're living, changing things and uh, the changes to a program are, are important to justify and report annually um, and then uh, there's the provision for, for other sort of national or, or jurisdictional data. Uh, so that, that's annual reporting and then this really is just another go at how it all fits together with those um, three sort of areas for investigation if you like. Um, the performance of pre-service teachers, the outcomes achieved after graduation and other, which again is easy to, to skip over, but is actually in some ways the interesting and important bit here, that investigation of issues that are important in the context of your program, uh, feeding into the collection of evidence, the annual reporting, and then through to the stage two accreditation application and I, I really want to kind of emphasise that here because I, I think this is the end game here. So um, the, the value, the whole sort of vision of this approach to accreditation as a mature system is really around stage two accreditation where the accreditation of programs is based on evidence generated by those programs and about their their performance. And I, I just really, really want to emphasise the bit that's in the stage two box there, that this is about the analysis, the interpretation of the evidence and the action that you propose to take based on it. And that, I think, is the, the critical point. If you cast that back through all the collection of evidence, the development of the plan for impact, the annual reporting, the real question is, what is going to give us useful evidence that can be used for evaluating the program in a way that supports its continuous improvement? And, and you know, I just think it's easy to get hung up on reporting of data and consistent data and what Michelle calls the summative evaluation. This really is a, 
a formative process. And the purpose of everything we're doing here is so that at stage two, we, you, can be telling a story about what works in your program, what doesn't, and what you're planning to change as a result. And that gets us into that, I think, much more um, sensible and nuanced approach to accreditation that's about improving individual programs rather than, than the cookie cutter. So that's what we're aiming for here, and I'm now going to, uh, to hand over to Chris. Um, my role here is to just talk a little bit about needs analysis versus means analysis. Um, in our working party, uh, we've been trying to brainstorm um, what data it is that we absolutely need uh, and then what data is it that we can actually collect um, that isn't too onerous, it isn't too impractical, it isn't too expensive for people to collect, um, that is actually needed to make those sorts of improvements that Michelle and Edmund have been talking about. Now, um, of course, this is where the, uh, the, the, the composition of the working party um, is a bit of a disadvantage. We're only a couple of institutions. Um, so we've been, I've been talking to other institutions about... Um, data and finding out that data that I think is really difficult to collect is easy for them or vice versa, um, that I don't see why some data should be uh, needed, whereas they think that's really important. And so the purpose of this afternoon is to um, look at all the institutions across Australia that's involved in this, are going to be involved in this exercise and share our understanding so that we can have a much more nuanced, contextualised picture of um, what is possible and what is necessary. Um, but I thought it might be useful just to go through... Um, uh, just one little example from my own context of um, some of the uh, things that I think are, are, are relatively easy, um, perhaps slightly difficult and then very difficult from my point of view, just to um, model a little bit of the kinds of conversations that you might be having around your table uh, and also raise a few questions about some of the uh, things that we might be asked to do. So um, you were all given a copy of the draft accreditation of initial teacher education programs in Australia, Standards and Procedures Annual Reporting Operational Guide. Um, so that was at the end of your documents that were emailed around. And that lists... A relatively short list of data to be collected. It did start out much, much longer. Um, so we uh, have have done a lot of sifting and sorting. Um, and uh, if you look at the first kind of main set of data, it's the contextualised program data about enrolments, commencements, completions, and so on, which our universities all already collect f through the HIMES process. Um, and it's already in the AITSL reports that they publish annually. Uh, along with data about retention. So that shouldn't be problematic uh, for us. It, it's not problematic in my institution, though I'm still having a, a vigorous discussion with Edmund about why on earth I need to um, report on first to second year program data when I have an intensive accelerated Master of Teaching. So where their first year ends is somewhere around you know, September. Um, and uh, I have a one of these newfangled dual degrees in New South Wales where you have to do 48 units of discipline-based study before you're allowed to roll over to your education uh, in, in practice. So that means 18 months into the dual degree is the key reporting 
um, attrition sort of selection, sifting, sorting moment for me. So the, the first, second year is problematic. And the other complication is my university is one of those progressive universities to don't believe in first year, second year, third year. And so we've got stage one, stage two, um, whether you're near the beginning or near the end. Um, so it's, it's problematic for me to collect that. And I know my university reports on Heim's data, uh, but it's usually there's no resemblance to reality. So we need to sort of think through this. But I spoke to someone else in a small institution um, that's very concerned about um, you know, maximising student retention. And they said, yeah, we've got this down pat. That's going to be really easy. I can do it in five seconds flat. Um, secondary specialisations, primary specialisations, that's another area. Now, at first I thought this is going to be easy because we all do this. And then I realised, to my horror, only New South Wales does this. Um, we've been reporting to Bostes since, I think, 2009, uh, twice a year, um, on how many students in every single um, secondary method area, how many students in primary are going to finish in order to accelerate or expedite um, their, their accreditation with the accreditation authority. Um, so we've sort of got a process for this. It, it's not done at the university level, it's done through our professional experience office because they're the ones who know exactly what students are doing because they've changed methods since they enrolled. They've, they've done all sorts of weird and wonderful things. But the Professional Experience Office has final sign-off on that. So I've already got a very nice system where we just export the data straight up the line. Um, but if you're not like that, and uh, um, a lot of states aren't, um, then we're going to have to develop something for that. Now, I only want to report that data once. At the moment, I'm reporting it to BOSTES, I'm reporting it to um, workforce planning purposes, to the Department of Education, and I was horrified to think I might also have to report it separately to AITSL. Um, I'm being reassured that, in fact, that will become easier. I'll report it to one body, which looks like it's going to be BOSTES. I want it to be BOSTES. Um, they'll give that data, with my permission, to the Department of Education and any other workforce agencies that want it, and they'll pass it on to AITSL. Um, and that's another question you might have. You know, who, who are you giving the data to? How is it being collected? And that's a very important question. And I think it'd be fair to say, Edmund, we still need to sort out exactly what is required. We certainly don't want to ask people to give data to AITSA when they're already getting it through another avenue, um, either through the local accreditation authority or through um, the Commonwealth Department of Education. Um, and that was where some of our discussions about the literacy and numeracy data. There's no literacy and numeracy data being asked for at this time because Department of Education federally has uh, almost every single piece of data you could possibly want in regard to literacy and numeracy. Um, selection. Uh, now, selection, um, I think UNS, UNSW was an early adopter of the transparency and so on. So you just no, need to go to my website for information about my ATARs, my, my minimums, my maximums, my medians, my, my means, my, and every other word starting with M, um, in order to see what's happening there. Now, I think a lot of people uh, are nowhere near that yet, but... To, Barney's saying this morning, um, Professor Glover, sorry, is saying this morning that there is, um, that report is before the, uh, the government and we will, we will be finding, I think, that our universities are having to make um, some more resources available for more transparent um, 
mapping of what's happening around ATAR. But we also know that there's a whole lot of other things other than ATAR and it's only a minority of our students who come in on an ATAR. So we're going to have to look carefully at how we're going to be able to report on that. I think any uh, data collection system that makes it really clear that it is a minority of students that are school leavers coming into our programs and it's a minority of students coming of that group coming in with an ATAR would be very, very helpful. The non-academic selection, um, watch this space, um, there's an enormous amount of activity happening there. So my strategy is going to be put it down as little as possible. You've got a fully worked out example um, in these papers. That person was trying to get an A plus, obviously, on their... Um, on their piece of assessment uh, and, and it does go into a lot of um, detail uh, but for many of us uh, when things are still uh, in flow and we're not quite sure exactly how we're going to do something it's probably better to go on minimalist rather than um, giving a lot of detail and then finding that it's all wrong. Um, we'll take questions in a second. Um, and then uh, in terms of demonstrating impact, this is obviously going to be um, the, the hardest area for us because none of us, I think, have good systems in place for demonstrating impact. One of the things that BOSTES has promised us in New South Wales... Um, in the GTIL, no less, the Great Teacher Inspired Learning, which they have not yet managed to do. John, where are you? Um, is There was a proposal that there be a teacher identifier and that all pre-service teachers were enrolled into the accreditation authority system um, at point of enrolment into a teacher education course. Obviously, this would be hugely helpful for us if we're going to do any sort of longitudinal study of um, how effective students uh, are thinking about their, how effective students are finding their programs, uh, you know, two years out, three years out, and so on. Um, that would be really helpful. At the moment, we have to go down on our knees, um, beg students at the end of their program for their personal email numbers, promise never to use them for any marketing requests for money um, or anything like that, only for the purposes of demonstrating impact. And we're yet to see um, how effective that is. Uh, that raises another question that I have, and that's about what about all the students who actually uh, international students or um, go overseas to Singapore or UK or so on. Um, we, have, uh, we have a lot of um, students who are highly mobile, um, particularly younger students, and um, we need to work out ways, I guess, of including them in our data set uh, so we, we don't find that our data set is completely unrepresentative of our programs or that we're um, somehow... Um, penalised for um, missing huge numbers uh, of students. And even um, uh, there's a lot of issues around that. Uh, in terms of um, the uh, impact, uh, the quilt has been suggested as a useful resource for helping us demonstrate impact. And um, Notre Dame thinks that's a great idea and so does University of Wollongong who come up very, very high on, on quilt. Um, my institution doesn't come so high on quilt, uh, which is something we need to address. But there is there is an issue with with quilt. First of all, it doesn't it doesn't uh, address masters of teaching at all. They're invisible. So if you look up Melbourne Uni, interested in their quilt scores, you get zero information. Um, so that's not going to work for masters of teaching. And then of course it's voluntary. 
I'll say this again, it's voluntary, it's voluntary, it's voluntary. And we all know uh, that that leads to a lot of um, error, a lot of unreliability, um, especially when it's a voluntary system post-graduation, um, particularly in relation to employment outcomes and things like that. If you're happily employed, you're probably far too busy uh, to fill out um, uh, a quilt data film. If you're grumpy and bad-tempered because you're yet another history teacher who hasn't found a job yet and you won't move outside the eastern suburbs, you might um, want to uh, spend quite a bit of time. So that's not necessarily a reliable instrument, even though it's a very public instrument. So our, um, our, uh, to address that, we're, we're trying to replicate a lot of the questions on the quilt get the students to do a 100% response in their final year and then give them that questionnaire for subsequent years once they're out there post-graduation so that we have our own information. And then we can compare it with the quilt and see whether we really have got a problem or, um, and what the nature of the problem is. Now, of course, um, there's still a question of trust. Would you trust my internal data versus the quilt data? Um, and that's something that we'd need to discuss um, with, uh, with various people. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of issues around assessing impact. I haven't even got into the whole issue of how do you assess how well they're actually teaching in the classroom, um, their impact on students, etc. We're talking about having maybe focus groups of key principals or working with partner schools, certainly your advisory committees that have um, people that are representative of the broader educational community, um, using uh, them as uh, resources to give you information can be useful. There's a lot of questions and I think we can learn from each other a lot uh, in this particular space. Uh, one of the things I will say is there's a teaching performance assessment and other assessments. There's a, a requirement for um, a, a reporting on that. Um, and you'll notice, it's, uh, I say this deliberately, um, that there is a, a fainter line on the, um, the number of columns uh, as you go across it because the intention is not to force us into um, grading students' performance. Um, that's very, very important, I think, to say at this point. I, for one, feel that there's so many variables. Um, students don't uh, get a choice of where they're put for their final professional experience um, and we, we simply grade them pass-fail and we simply uh, get information about whether they meet the standard or not. So I'd be very reluctant to start giving more information or uh, more assessment. I might give quite qualitative assessment to the students, um, but to be starting to report on things that uh, are public documents um, that would give them grades when they didn't choose that uh, really great supervisor who's really enhanced their performance and likewise they didn't choose that school where it's not, a, not been as a supportive place as perhaps some of their peers. I think that could be very negative um, impact if we start um, you know, making fine distinctions in terms of students' final results. After all, they have transcripts, uh, they are graded on all their other coursework, they have professional experience reports, they have plenty of information for employers to make a, a considered judgment about whether to employ them or not from us. Um, so that's just a few few um, insights into sort of one person, one institution's thinking about some of these issues. Uh, and I would really, really look forward to the next part of the presentation, which uh, the next part of the session, which is going to be sharing our ideas and information about how we're going to go about these things. Um, so we, we'll just stop at that point because we want to have 
uh, a, a brief moment for questions of clarification. Um, not, not comments on, uh, not, not detailed comments, but any things that you're not sure about, and then we'll um, explain the task. So, so questions remind, to anyone, Edmund? Remind colleagues to please wait for the microphone as well, because we're filming, and although we all have great teacher voices, the camera doesn't pick that up. So, quick questions of clarification around anything that we've heard so far. Thanks, Chris. I just wanted to ask you about the selection and um, the use of ATAR. Um, are we talking only about direct entry? So we're talking about school leavers with ATARs, that is coming into undergraduate programs. Or um, This is a complication because if you're taking in postgraduate students, they don't always come from your own institution and many of them have other careers, et cetera, et cetera, in between. I just want to know about that. Ata. So I, I think in this context is the, where the ATAR is the basis of admission. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought I was close to it. So uh, I do think in this context we're talking about where the ATAR is the basis of admission. You know, certainly in a postgraduate program, I don't... might be an interesting study to do, but I don't... So that the ATAR is the defining thing there? I'd just add that it goes back to the project rationale that you've got, you know, where, where you're actually describing, um, you know, your theory of change. So if, you're, if, you're, if you've got a graduate program, the theory of change that you're describing is going to start from a very different point. So then the... And, and it will, by default, then define that there are a different set of characteristics that you'd be looking for um, that you might then want to define as being the, the inputs, if you like, um, that you start from. So it go, you would be linking that back to your program theory of change that you will have written, your rationale. Yeah, I might just clarify. When I was talking about ATARs, my institution was only undergraduate. At the postgraduate, because we're having to report on how we choose, how we select by ac academic capability, I'd be talking about, you know, grade point averages or, you know, p p particular patterns that we're looking for in students' um, disciplinary studies in their first degree. Excellent, thanks. Any other burning questions that we need to answer before you start talking with one another? Um, Mary Mooney, uh, just a very uh, quick question. Attachment 4, the draft um, annual reporting operational guide, um, does not have an author, and I'd like to know um, who's designed it. Uh, Aitzel. I won't be more specific than that. Um, and, and we're editing <laughs> but it. We, and we have been talking particularly to Michelle and Chris about it. I just want to say one more thing about that too. The way we've conceptualised that is that that would be the data that was reported by regulators to AITSL. So there's no direct reporting from providers to AITSL in this approach, which deals with some of the doubling up issues. I just wanted to ask about workforce trends that may or may not be exactly accessible for universities. Um, one of the questions is around the number of teachers, number of our graduates who get registration, and we can't access that data, but our local yeah. regulator won't provide that information right. either. So we are, we are working on a national data strategy 
which if it's endorsed by all ministers and implemented and blah, 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 we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that that's an important piece of the puzzle. And, of course, if your local regulator won't provide that, they can't presumably also hold you to account for it. Um, I think that's one of the things we're trying to do with this is to have data, data exchange, you know, because there's huge amounts of data about where our students end up and what they do that is really, really useful for us as well. But the other thing that that also raises is the challenge that we have about trying to join up data sets and about having uh, common definitions and I think we're a bit of a, a way to actually... Because what we want to do is if we put apples with apples, we want to know we're actually really putting apples and apples together. And then if we're going to put Johnny apples with Johnny apples, then that's fine. We don't want to put, you know, um, other types. We've got to be... And so I think there's a lot of work that... Which I know Edmund's talked about, of thinking through about how we actually have the joined-up data sets that actually then enable us to then be able to have, make sense of it. Because if we're just joining rubbish together... Uh, we're going to get rubbish. So, yeah, so that was kind of to my point too, that you can put two data sets alongside each other that um, can look like they're connected and actually have no bearing on each other. And that's a concern I have about the way some data is presented already. And so if we do this, we've actually all got to commit to using the data respectfully and accurately and that there's a collaborative interpretation of the data. We, we actually agree on the interpretation of the data. It's, um, it's not, it, it, we just can't um, put two data, it's, it's statistics, statistics and damn lies. And we've actually got to move beyond that. And we, oh, I'm a big fan of sharing data, but there's got to be true respect in the room. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not convinced we've always had that. And I think we're moving there and this is a really good thing. Yeah. But somehow um, we need to be heard on how the data, rep what the data represents and that that representation is fair and accurate mm. and respectful. Yeah, and that also goes back to us actually having a very strong conceptual framework that understands, you know, what impact means, what we're measuring, what and what, you know, sometimes what proxy measures we're actually using to assert um, uh, particular outcomes. It may mean how we also agree in the way we might construct um, measures. So, for example, attrition is an example that, of, that we could construct from uh, particular variables. Um, uh, you know, at the simplest, we could do something silly like saying, well, how many did you have enrolled in year two and how many did you have enrolled in year one and take the difference between the two and then that's the attrition. You know, that, it doesn't work like that. So it's about also how we actually understand how the, the baseline variable was, is put together and so therefore what we can actually do with it as well, or how the number has been constructed. But Evelyn, we've talked about that, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing is to make sure that we have data protocols in place for the exchange. As we, we've got in New South Wales, we're developing with the literacy and numeracy tests with the Commonwealth Department of Education. That needs to be um, also rolled out across the country, I think, so that there is data is used for the purpose for which it's produced and not for other various... Unrelated purposes. Uh, gi given that we were already perilously close to a comment, and I don't want to Tony Jones you, um, I think we might actually move to the discussion if that's okay. One of the benefits of this situation is that we've got diverse tables, uh, people from a variety of different jurisdictions, and it, it's coming out more and more that it's some of these jurisdictional issues and contextual issues, how big your university is, where it is, um, all of those kind of things are really relevant. So as a way of 
being able to have a good quality input into this process. Let's have a conversation. We've got about 20 minutes or so for that conversation, and then we'll get some reporting back and continue the bigger conversation. So these are your questions up here. What data might you use to meet Program Standard 6 in terms of pre-service teacher performance and graduate outcomes and how will it be used to inform program improvements? But if you really want to talk about anything else that we've raised, uh, feel free and report back on that.